Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast that will explore ways to preserve harmony and to prevent harmful conflict in valued relationships, and also ways to resolve conflict effectively and to restore harmony if damaging conflict should occur. We will delve into specific tips to manage conflict in life and into much broader topics touching on conflict, actual and potential, good and bad, in the world around us. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Dr. Vanessa Avery. I met Vanessa through her involvement with the Sharing Sacred Spaces initiative, which I view as an especially positive and practical approach to preventing damaging conflict. That work alone was an excellent reason to invite her onto the podcast. Learning about Vanessa's academic and other professional endeavors was a bonus. Hello, Vanessa. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm looking forward to hearing a bit about your path so far and what's ahead for you. Great, Jane. Hi, happy to be here. Well, I will ask you to start by telling us a bit about your academic and professional journey so far. Fantastic. It's a substantial narrative for sure. Good. There have been a few twists and turns, but I I think I can sum it up uh, best in talking really about how it's progressed over two different tracks in my life. The first track, as you mentioned, is is the academic one. And I've spent much of my life being trained as an academic. I first attended McGill University in Montreal for a degree in comparative religion. I went on to King's College London for a Master of Theology in Hebrew Bible. And then I followed that up with another master's uh, at Yale Divinity School in Arts and Religion. And then I finally culminated it with a Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Exeter, again in England in theology. And much of that academic journey was intellectual training, but it, it was really also soul training for me. Through each degree, I grappled with my own sacred texts as well as those of other religions. And what I realized is that I had a, a real ability to see different paradigms of the world clearly and also to switch from one paradigm to another quite easily. And I, I relished that exercise. That's wonderful. Do you think that some of that was innate? And some of that was your training as you went along, or how did that turn out that way? I have a sense that at least to some degree, it's innate. I have a, an inclination and a, an ability for abstract thought, and I may not be so good about changing tires <laughs> doing practical things, <laughs> but I can certainly see from different paradigms and the extensive amount of study uh, really helped me as well, because you can't really see a religious paradigm unless you also understand its sacred texts and its histories and its ritual practices. So really getting the full pictures through all of my degrees was helpful in getting the essential paradigm. And I can't help but notice that you also travel through a couple different countries there, or maybe more than a couple. How did that affect your academic growth, do you think? A great question. Well, I think it 
created an adaptability. Um, I had to learn how to navigate not just the geography of different cities, but the culture of different cities, the culture of different classrooms to succeed. There are even different writing formats that you need to learn. So it was, I think, a great combination to be educated both in the British system, uh, the Commonwealth, Canada also, and also in the American system. The American system is very broad and, and liberal-minded, and the, the European system is known really for its focus. So I got to do a lot of general study, and then I also got to hone in very carefully through a master's and also my PhD on, on very specific ideas. And for my PhD, actually, I did wind up writing on a French call him a polymath because he spans so many disciplines and brings them together, uh, named René Girard. And he offered a paradigm even of his own, which suited my interests well. Should I talk about him a little bit? I I think so. This is, it's fascinating because it gives us a a foundation for the work you're doing now. And obviously there's work between your academic career and today, but I think it's very helpful for us to get a sense of how you've developed to where you are. I mean, most people do find his theory fascinating, whether or not they agree with him is another question, (laughs) but okay, it really does open up a view of a structure of violence that's so fascinating. And it's certainly what fascinated me. So his method involved analyzing literature, religious and otherwise. So he looked at Proust and Shakespeare as as well as the, the Bible in a way that opens up a new kind of human anthropology. And Really, where he begins is by asking this penetrating question. So his seminal book is called Violence and the Sacred. Mm-hmm. And in the opening of that book, he asks, why did human beings once upon a time resort to violence to carry out religious acts? Wow. Yes. Specifically sacrifice, right? Killing animals or even other humans. Uh, so why, why did this even emerge? And, okay. and then he answers the question. <laughs> A big question. Fully, because it's a good question. (laughs) And he says, well, it's because these acts of violence are not really sacrifices, but they're symbolic acts of scapegoating. Oh. So that once upon a time, he says, imagine we go all the way back in history. Once upon a time, there was conflict, which was so extensive that it could have ruined an entire community. And they wound up creating a victim, one victim, to substitute, to take the blame for the conflict, and then disposing of that victim. That's, that's the so-called scapegoat, yes. which then was able to reconcile the community. So Girard gives us this kind of imaginary narrative and says, well, the community found that that was so effective that they ritualized it and reenacted it, even in times of peace the reenactment would sustain the peace. And in times of conflict, it would quell the conflict. So sacrifice within religion is really a structure to, of scapegoating to maintain or regain peace within a community and, and thereby avoid more extensive violence. Interesting. As you describe it, I'm hearing prevention of conflict and then resolution of conflict. Both, exactly. The scapegoat There's more nuance to it than that even. The scapegoat at once takes the blame, but also becomes the remedy. Yes. (laughs) The savior. So it's so interesting the way this plays out. The Greek word for that is pharmakon, which is both a poison, but a 
an antidote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really quite interesting. Girard also goes back and gives kind of reason for why the scapegoating happens, and he attributes that to a uniquely human propensity, uh, not even propensity, but an innate characteristic of humans to imitate desire in one another. Hmm. So none of our desires at the end of the day are our own, but they're all acquired by the environment around us, by the people, by the culture, by the media. You know, our desires are taken on. So, you know, Meghan Markle's handbags are sold out in instants online. Right. <laughs> after they're, you know, shown in the media. <laughs> right. So are right. Kim Kardashian. So if there's any proof, we ever did, it's right there that would we have ever desired that handbag had we not seen Meghan Markle carrying it? Right. Not at all. <laughs> How interesting. So that academic foundation carry you to what? Right. Thank you. So uh, there is a second track that we could follow along oh, sure. to understand my journey, which is after my second master's. And I'm not really sure how I, I came up with the idea originally, but I became aware of this growing phenomenon of cultural diversity training, at least in the States, but I, I think also in, in Europe as well. Vanessa, around what year are you talking about? 1998. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in this phenomenon. And um, I decided to, you know, I had three degrees in religious studies and not yet my PhD. And, and frankly, you know, what are you going to do with that <laughs> for work? Challenging. It, it was challenging. And I was very interested in this cultural training. So I decided to do some research and I called some cultural trainers. Some I connected to through friends, others I cold called. And I met with them to ask some informational questions. And one of the questions that I asked each one of them was whether they train on religious diversity in their sessions. And they all, without exception, said no. Wow. And when I asked why, they said, because what seems like a religious diversity issue to them always boils down to something else. So for example, time or cleanliness, like if a kitchen worker grows their hair for religious reasons, they therefore need to follow a specific protocol to pull their hair back. So the trainers were calling this a cleanliness issue and not a religious one. Was that a surprise to you? Absolutely. And, you know, in a certain way, it makes sense. I can understand that solving a cleanliness issue, uh, really perhaps the practical interpretation But they also said they don't address it because they believed religion was a private matter and shouldn't be discussed in the workplace. Hmm. And for me, really, the problem was that whether we're talking about religious accommodations or religion itself, these differences and these tensions get swept under the rug when they're not discussed and understood. And the problems typically grow from there. You know, the matter of the, the kitchen worker with a hairnet, these are not usually the ones that wind up in the courts. But we can tell that there is a religious diversity area just by the number that there are thousands that do wind up in the courts every year. True. And so not talking about it, you know, there's clearly something more going on. Tip of the iceberg of what else might be happening. Right. So, yeah, to make a long story short, I, I just disagreed with the cultural trainer's approach and I started my own company. What a wonderful reaction. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a bit about that, how that has developed over time. I began just on my own, um, and I, it was a homespun business. I created my brochures on my own computer. I generated lists just by looking 
online or looking through phone books or going through friends of people I could call who might be interested in the training. I gave a you know, a few things away for free in the beginning, or I charged very little, but one appearance and training led to more. And I began to be able to charge well for what I did. And a a friend from college who had a similar background as me in religious studies came on board and we worked together. And it just really grew from there. I was doing corporate healthcare and academic trainings. I was called in to do keynotes and speaking engagements and some strategy development. And after a few years, I partnered with another company called Cambridge Hill Partners. And they still exist, actually. They're a fantastic company of formerly uh, internal Harvard consultants around diversity. And we there, I worked on international diversity as well as core competencies for management for uh, long-term clients. And basically, here I am. Did you find over time that there was a growing recognition of the value of providing this kind of training? Absolutely. There were people in the trainings who were relieved and and thankful that someone was finally talking about this. Uh, There were certainly tensions that came up in some of the trainings around religious accommodations uh, where, you know, people would question, well, why do they get to leave early on a Friday? Or why do they get an hour to pray during the day? And I don't get to do what I need to do. (laughs) You know, why don't I get an accommodation? Yes. And the very act of bringing it out in the open, instead of keeping it swept under the rug, would seem like a positive thing. Exactly. So those are the things that get swept under the rug that create a kind of resentment or a hostility. And There's not always an environment, and I even find this in the Sharing Sacred Spaces program, there's not always the environment to ask those questions in a way that one feels won't offend the other person. You need to create a safe space to dialogue about these issues so that understanding can manifest. Um, And there are so many nuances to those kinds of questions and issues as well that can be teased out in a session with an experienced trainer. Yes. That may not necessarily really come to fruit in a, in a one-on-one conversation amongst two people. I can see as you're describing that how that can be difficult for individuals to try to have a conversation without causing offense or making a dicey situation worse or actually saying something that perhaps was not intended to be was not intended to have the impact that it did, but it caused a negative result by bringing that up. Right. Vanessa, I I would ask you to tell us a bit about sharing sacred spaces. That's where you and I met for the first time in the fall of 2018. And I feel very fortunate that I was someone who could participate in the program in its run in New Haven. How did sharing sacred spaces come into being? Well, Sharing Sacred Spaces was founded by a retired architect named Suzanne Morgan. Suzanne has a a special interest in architecture merged with liturgical design, which she also studied in depth. And after 9-11, she became very interested in how her expertise could function to get people past fears and bring them together. So she, for example, started an interfaith prayer room in Chicago. She also started giving lectures about religious architectural history. 
and she provided tours of religious spaces. She still does all this, by the way. Um, And she's done a number of incredible projects. Uh, In about 2011, she partnered with the then executive director of the Parliament of the World's Religions, also in Chicago. His name was uh, Reverend Dirk Ficke. Okay. They designed sharing sacred spaces together. And um, after they designed it, they piloted the program in Chicago, bringing aid congregations together in this multi-year process of relationship building and education. So the architecture has had a central role in the program. Is that right? Correct. It's really one of the vehicles for bringing people together in a non-threatening way. So it holds a kind of aesthetic appeal, (laughs) you know, come visit our space, come visit our beautiful church or come visit our temple or, and I say that in Chicago, which is, you know, an architectural Mecca, it makes sense that this program began. Right. When we bring it into a place like New Haven, you know, sacred space also attains a completely different kind of meaning. So we have people who enter into a space that's a home that's been converted into a a mosque or an old schoolhouse that's been converted into a Hindu ashram. And initially, I think the communities ask, well, you know, we don't have a purpose-built structure. Is that okay? (laughs) And I say, it's wonderful because we can have a dialogue about the meaning of sacred space in the absence of architectural space for your specific community and what it means to you. And in many cases, what people come up with is that it's the community that that gathers together that really creates the sacred space. And it doesn't have to be a a fancy building. Right. You know, there are several goals for sharing sacred spaces. So one is to invite congregations into the process to visit each other's houses of worship. And and I, I should say there's a second thing really too experiencing other spaces. This is the other architectural piece, whether it's a converted home or a, or a purpose-built building, that when doing this, people are stepping into a religious orientation. So emphasizing the architectural religious tour, learning about how the space and this community orients in space, it's a, it's a fully embodied experience. So a Jewish person, for example, stepping into a Catholic space is in and of itself an act that compels reflection on one's own and another's identity. So a Catholic, I, I feel like I should explain that a little, but... Sure. So a Catholic church, you know, when you step into a Catholic church, you have the pews, which all face front, and they're in a part of the church that's named the nave, which is from the Latin word for ship. So when someone's sitting in the nave, they're on the ship sailing, so to speak, in one direction. And when you look at what's ahead, you see the crucifix, which is there, usually up on high in the apse. So you're sailing toward Christ the King or Christ the Savior. And when that architecture is explained and you're perhaps a non-Catholic sitting in the space, it makes one think. The space is beautiful and compelling, and yet one may be oriented differently. And it creates a, a theological reflection and a way to also create a meaningful dialogue about theology between groups and about space between groups. It certainly seemed to work beautifully for those of us who participated in New Haven to have that experience and the wide variety, as you say, of these physical spaces. And some were 
as different as they could be from the more famous examples of that kind of sacred space for that particular faith. Yeah, very true. Very true. They all have very unique qualities. And um, I think we learned a lot about how belief systems and value systems infuse spaces, you know, looking at icons or the absence of icons, looking at simplicity versus very ornate spaces. There are so many different things that we can look at in architectural space that tell us about the people and the beliefs of those who inhabit it. It's really quite fascinating. It was delightful. Tell us a bit about how the program runs over the course of that first year and within each visit. So it's a little complex, so so bear with me. Sure. There's certainly a very particular template to the program, and there are kind of two tracks to the program as well. So first, each site visit to each house of worship is very deliberate. The feedback that I get on that too is that predictability helps people feel safe when they're going on these visits to Mm -hmm. other spaces. They know that there will be the same format to each program, and they know that I'll be there to keep things running smoothly. Yes, (laughs) definitely a plus. And and so that format when we go to each visit is we get an architectural religious tour of the space, which includes information about the community. We see a demonstration of a ritual. We might participate if possible, or if that's what the tradition even allows. So we we design it accordingly. There's an overview of the beliefs and practices of the tradition. There's sharing from two members about their spiritual journeys. There's a question and answer session. There's some time for unstructured conversation, typically over delicious food. (laughs) And there's some time for structured dialogue on a topic. Now that happens for once a month during the course of the first year. That's the public process, if you will. Okay. But then there's a non-public process that happens behind the scenes. And these are monthly meetings of a core group of people, lay people, two people from each of the participating congregations. And in these, what I call planning meetings, the core group does everything. They plan the whole process. They schedule out the dates. They create the overview brochure. Then once all this is done... I engage them in exercises that gets everyone deeper into meaningful dialogue. So around values, issues, community benefits, and visions for the future. And all this, the the deep work the core group does, this is what really creates the fabric of each site visit. So there's the warmth, the glue, and they spread that throughout each of their own communities to bring them into the process. And that's how community building happens. A couple of people that then bring in their own groups into the middle process. So we began with 16 people in our core group and we're ending up with 115 people who visited our programs. We've had about 50 people at each visit over the course of the year. And that's, to me, that's a great turnout for regular interfaith gatherings. Seems fantastic. And having participated, warmth is absolutely the right word. The welcoming of the people who have the pride of welcoming people, inviting people into their own space, and then seeing the familiar faces of, didn't we enjoy the last place we visited together? Right, exactly. So what happens uh, after the first year? After the first year, we continue for another year in which we deepen relationships. 
And in Chicago, what they did was visit each other's spaces once again, but on a special day, either a a Sabbath service or a holy day or perhaps a meditation retreat, something like that, so that they could experience something different with the community. That's what they did in Chicago. I expect we'll do very similar in New Haven, but we do design it according to what the group wants, so we're a bit flexible with that. The third year, however, is set, which involves taking an interreligious strategic action. So whatever they choose to do for the second year, we're going to start the process of that interreligious action uh, about midway through this year. Great. Well, this is terrific to get a taste of what sharing sacred spaces is about. I'm curious too about what's ahead for you because you've had an interesting arc so far and I suspect there are many interesting things to come. Thank you for asking. What's ahead for me? Well, first I want to bring sharing sacred spaces to its full potential. So I see the program as a a new kind of community organizing amongst religious groups. And it's so unique in so many ways. One, it's for lay people. Clergy has so many vehicles to get together and lay people really typically don't. And second, the program requires a real commitment to be engaged. And most interfaith events are one-off and the results Mm. I find are fairly superficial. So we actually build friendships here. In my own research too, I've learned that there's a practice within cities that most easily quell violence when violence erupts. And this practice is regular meetings across difference, across silos. So ultimately, this is my goal, is to bring sharing sacred spaces to cities that are suffering the most. And I'm confident that this program can break down barriers and make a real difference. As for other avenues ahead for me, I'm building up my consultancy practice to offer a type of diversity and inclusion 2.0, if you will. Great. And this diversity and inclusion 2.0 package utilizes a community building structure within and across organizations and companies to build relationships, to educate and build networks across difference. So I believe the current form of diversity is going to break down. I think the focus on intersectionality and social identities is unfortunately creating walls instead of building relationships in many, in many, I would dare to say, in most places. Um, so we're going to need another approach, and this is what I'm building, and, and I'm really fantastically excited about it. <laughs> How inspiring. I'm delighted to hear that. Well, this has been so interesting. I've enjoyed hearing what you have done. I'm enjoying hearing what you're doing now and what you see ahead. And especially so grateful for your optimism about what good things can happen with some, say, maybe some sensitivity and the experience you've had in the past. Vanessa, how would someone learn more about your work? How could they contact you? And also, how could they learn more about sharing sacred spaces? Well, I could best be reached by email or phone. Uh, my email is V for Vanessa, J for Jane, Avery, A-V-E-R-Y, 222 at com, And my phone number is 203-5166. And the website for sharing sacred spaces is www.sacredspace.world. Great. We've touched upon a lot of fun things. Is there anything you feel we should have touched on and haven't? 
You know, I just want to say that the programs that will be running in New Haven and also in Stanford are public programs. And I invite people to come and join us to create proactive peace. And um, I also invite people to just get in touch with me about my new effort for diversity and inclusion. If they have an interest, I'd welcome a chance to, to talk about it. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Vanessa. It has been not only interesting, but inspiring to talk with you about these very positive projects that you have been involved in and see coming down the road. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please subscribe through one of the major apps. You can also find the show on the web by searching for Crafting Solutions to Conflict. For those of you who are new to listening to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing to podcasts is free. Comments or ideas about the podcast? Let me know at jb, as in my initials, at dovetailresolutions.com. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.